Well, welcome to our, uh, our, our weekend on hypocrisy. Tough, tough subject in the sense that all of us have, have either felt like a hypocrite or looked at others and felt they were hypocrites. One of the uh, uh, cartoons I love are the, the Peanut uh, cartoon. Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy. And one of the ones that I really like to tell is about Lucy. And uh, she's having a bad day. And she exclaims, I just, I hate everything. I hate everyone. I hate the whole wide world. And Charlie Brown looks at her and he says, I thought you had inner peace. And she responds, I do. But I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> you ever known somebody like Lucy? You know, they say one thing, but they really act another way. We call them two-faced. Hypocrites. They pretend to be somebody they're not. All of us have known people like that. And there's no worse hypocrite than someone who also claims to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, that is the worst. And we've all talked to people. And we've talked to them about our faith. We've talked to them about going to church with us. And we've received that response. Oh, I'm not really interested in going to church. I'm not really interested in God because... You know, I know this Christian at work, or I know this Christian at school, or I've seen this Christian on television, or I know about this certain pastor, and you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You like to tell me what's wrong with my life, but you got stuff in your own life, and it's like you don't do, you don't do anything with it. Gandhi once made a remark. He said, you know something, I like your Christ, It's your Christians I don't like. Because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, if Christ were here, I know one thing he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be a Christian. Ouch. I mean, is it true? Are we really that hypocritical that that we turn people off rather than turning people on to God? What does it mean to be a hypocrite? In what way uh, are Christians and churches sometimes hypocritical? What's at the root of it all? And to answer that question, and I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. It's a, a passage of Scripture that uh, uh, deals with hypocrisy in a powerful way. Jesus is having a conversation and he's talking to the Pharisees who were like the religious leaders of the day and he, he's pointing out their hypocrisy. I don't have time to read the entire chapter, but I want to read just a few verses that, that will interest you, I'm sure, and cause you to read the rest of the chapter. I prefer you not to do it this weekend, all right? Do it later on after the services. But listen, verse 1, chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds... And to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show 
On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Turn over to verse 13. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell. You yourselves are. Wow. And if you keep reading that passage, Jesus goes on to call them a few other choice things like blind fools, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, vipers, snakes. It is the most ticked off you will see Jesus in the Gospels. Why was he so angry with the Pharisees? Why were they such hypocrites in his eyes? And I might add, in the eyes, a lot of the people back in those days. And I think the answer is because they were law or rule-centered rather than God-centered. They saw themselves as the keepers of the law. They saw themselves as referees. They saw the law as the only means of salvation. And that's why when Jesus showed up, they rejected him because Jesus offered himself not just as a Messiah figure who is going to rescue the people, but rescue them from their sins as a savior. And they already had a savior and it was the law. They just wanted a political Messiah who would get rid of the Romans. That's all they were interested in. And so when Jesus wasn't about to go along the program, they crucified him. The law was their savior. They loved the law. They took the law and and the principles that God gave and they interpreted them into many other kinds of laws and then imposed those laws on the people and said, it's how you live by these laws that will determine whether you are righteous or not. And they gave themselves completely to trying to live out the law in their own lives. They failed to realize, as Paul points out in the book of Galatians, that the law is only meant to see us how only meant to help us see how much we need a Savior. The law shows us how unrighteous we are, how imperfect we are, so that we cry out for God to rescue us. The law is not an end in itself. It points us, Paul says, to Christ and our need for him. But they made the law an end in itself. You say, but wait a minute, Dale. I mean, these guys weren't perfect, were they? I mean, they they messed up too. So, like, how did they deal with the imperfections that the law pointed out in their lives? Well, to understand that better, I want to take you to a story that Jesus told over in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Give you a minute to to get over to that passage of Scripture. Whether you're here at 111, you need to have your Bibles, you need to have them open, following along. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Listen to this story Jesus tells. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Uh Aha, we know who that is. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. 
For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. Man, I don't know if I could say that, the part about I don't sin, all right? I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. It's like he's saying, God, I am perfect. See, how can that guy say he's perfect? Well, look what he says in the next verse. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves be humbled, and those who humble themselves be exalted. Now, what was the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee assumes his righteousness by comparing himself to the tax collector. The tax collector compares himself to God and feels absolutely worthless, beats his chest. So the Pharisee says, I'm righteous by how I compare myself to other people. And as long as I feel better than those people, then I feel good about myself. I'm keeping more of the law. Therefore, I'm righteous. Aren't you impressed, God? The tax collector says, oh my goodness, when I stand before God, knowing who I am and what I'm like, I just, I feel like I just want to die because He's so holy and I'm so unholy. He's so worthy and I'm utterly worthless. And the same thing happens in our lives sometimes as Christians. I guess it's in our bones. It's in our nature. But we have a tendency as to become believers and the longer we become believers to kind of roll back into legalism. Because by nature, we have a habit of being kind of competitive. And we have a habit of kind of assessing our, st- our self-esteem always in comparison to others. I feel good about myself when I sense that I'm better than you are. And almost subconsciously, it's wired in our DNA, it's our sin nature, to do that. And if you're not careful, it can take hold of your life and you become a legalist. And that is what then breeds hypocrisy. It all becomes not about what God has done for me. We move from being grace-based to legalistic. And it becomes about what I don't do. And it's what I don't do that then makes me righteous. I grew up in that. I have a PhD in it. I grew up in the Wesleyan domination. Nothing against Wesleyanism, but the kind of theology I grew up with, oh my goodness, it really moved you toward having to keep the rules and the regulations and the law so God wouldn't be mad at you. And, and the way you did that was kind of compare yourself to others. I've seen it all. You know, it's about how you dress that makes you righteous. Kind of like what you saw in the video. Or it's about the kind of music you listen to. Or what you go see or don't see. Or what habits you participate in or don't participate in. It's all about what you shouldn't do that makes you righteous. And the only way I can know that, you know, I'm doing the right thing is I got to compare myself to you. And I see you doing those things that I talk about that. But, you know... Not me. I don't do those things. I'm not like you. Therefore, I must be righteous. And when you grow up with that mindset, when you have that kind of rule mindset, when you're rule-centered versus grace-centered, 
It hurts your life and it hurts the lives of people around you because they see you pointing your finger at them. And as they see you doing that to your words and to your actions, to your attitude towards them, then they look at you and you see, we get blindness in our eyes because we're looking at them. We're forgetting about ourselves and they see the junk in our lives and they go, who are you to tell me whatever you're saying? Who are you to look down your nose at me? You've got issues too. Which then kind of leads us into the next area that causes so much issues with being hypocritical for Christians. There's a a book written a while back called Unchristian. What the new generation thinks about the faith, thinks about us, thinks about Christianity. And uh, the authors of this research study took a lot of time to interview non-believers and believers to kind of get to the source of things, to find out what are people really thinking, what do they think about Christians, how do Christians really behave versus how non-Christians behave. And so after they did this study, they made kind of their summary, and I want to I read it to you. Here's what they said. Born-agains were distinct on some religious variables, most notably owning more Bibles, going to church more often, and donating money to religious nonprofits, especially a church. However, when it came to non-religious factors, the substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, there were few meaningful gaps between born-again Christians and non-born-agains. In virtually every study we conducted, representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians failed to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. Now that ought to shock us and wake us up. In essence, what their study reveals is that there's not a whole lot of difference between those of us who say we are Christians and those who would see themselves as non-Christians. Yeah, there's a couple little things here and there. We go to church, we own a Bible, some things like that. But generally speaking, in our attitude and our behavior, they look at us and they go, you're not much different than us. So why are you talking to me about God and why are you talking to me about religion? You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And to me, it's just, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing when our, when our young people who talk about going to youth group are also smoking pot or involved in pornography or having sex. I mean, all the way down. I mean, Naperville, all you got to do is st- read the local newspapers and stuff. It doesn't start in high school, folks. It starts like in fifth grade on into junior high. It's a problem. It's an issue. Or when people look at us and, and watch us and, and listen to us and they, and they see, you know, soccer moms who claim, you know, that they're Christians and they talk about Jesus, but then they also talk about everybody else in the community. Gossip, that's a real turnoff. Or when businessmen who lead Bible studies or um, quote verses or have the fish on their car or on their desk cheat on the numbers a little bit to get a better market rating from their sales that month to put their company in a better light. You know, other people see that and they they watch that and they go, Bible study leader, Christian, fish on the desk, but he cheats on the numbers. They're like, what's that all about? You got a double standard going here. Something's not, something's not right. Or when they see singles, young adults who talk about church and talk about their Bible study or their small group, but they're out there hooking up out there having sex 
Without being married, they just go, what's this all about? The double standard. I don't understand this. You say one thing, but you do another. Or, or when they watch Christian leaders, pastors and worship leaders and others who preach about morality and about purity, about honoring their spouse and honoring your, your family and on and on. And then they watch us turn around and have extramarital affairs and leave our families and fall into the arms of another man or another woman. I mean, it's just, you know, people just look at it and they go, forget it, I'm not interested. And you and I live in a culture right now that is so saturated with, with lies and hypocrisy that it's really hard for people to trust anybody when your leaders are, are lying to you and they know they're lying and you know they're lying, but you just pretend they're really saying the truth when CEOs can't be trusted, when our parents, when priests, when, when Christian leaders, when moms and dads and spouses are, are betraying each other, lying to each other, being dishonest about things. You know, people just go, and the new generation just goes, I don't want it. I just don't want it. I don't want to be a part of that. And, you know, whether we like it or not, that's where we're at today. And the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to turn it around? How, how do we get away from, from hypocrisy? How do we become the real deal? And I want to share just a, a couple of thoughts with you. And, and they certainly are inspired and influenced by Mark Middleberg. I enjoy reading his stuff and his material. And he, he talks about hypocrisy. And I, I want to share some of the things that he says that, that, that speak to me. And I want to elaborate on them a bit and kind of share with you some other thoughts that can help you personally, help me, help us as the Compass Church, help us be less hypocritical. Help us be a place where people can see the authenticity of what God can do in transforming a heart or a life. You might want to jot these down. When our friends, all right, here's one way you can deal with hypocrisy. When our friends condemn hypocrisy, let them know they're actually on Jesus' side. All right? When your friends say to you, I'm not interested in the church. I don't want anything to do with Christians because you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Just look at them and say, wow, man, you are on Jesus' side. Did you know that? And after they stop stuttering, because they could never imagine you saying something like that to them, then say, I wonder what else you and Jesus have in common. Take them to Matthew chapter 23. They'll love to hear you read that passage of scripture. They'll be like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. That's right, that's true. Help them understand. Help them understand that perspective. Secondly, share this with them. Jesus is the only perfect example. Jesus Christ is the only perfect example. He's the only non-hypocrite who's ever lived and therefore the only one who won't disappoint us. Because he is perfect, because he is not a hypocrite, if we'll get our eyes on him, we can be assured of the fact that he will never, ever disappoint us. Do you believe that? I believe that. I love the story about um, Ruth Bell Graham. She was the the wife uh, of Billy Graham. She passed away several years ago. She tells a story about talking to an Indian student one day and this Indian student by the name of Pashi said to her, we in India would be interested in your Christ, but we cannot find any Christians who act like your Christ. He really upset her. 
So she went and found a, a friend and an expert, a, a Christian, uh, Dr. Abdul Haq. And he said, I've been challenged by this student. And this student tells me that they would be interested in Christ if they could find a Christian who lived like Christ. And, and she said, what do I say to her? And he said, oh, it's very simple. You just tell her you're not offering her Christianity. You're offering her Christ. That's pretty profound when you think about it. What we have to offer people is not a religious system. What we have to offer people is not Christianity. What we offer people is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. That's what we offer people. A relationship. A relationship to the Son of God. The holy, perfect Son of God. And all of His grace. That's what we offer. We're not offering them Christianity. It's not membership in our club. You say, well then, what good is the church in Christianity? Oh, it's, it's, it's profound when it's operating the way Christ wants it to operate. See, we're supposed to be a picture to the rest of the world of what Christ can do, not just in one person, but a whole group of us when we get together in fellowship. They should see heaven on earth, in a sense, in our lives, in our relationships. But a lot of people look at the church and it's like hell on earth. Fighting and bickering and lying and backstabbing and immorality and on and on and on it goes i know there's no perfect church i know that for sure because i'm you know i'm a member of the church but it ought to be a whole lot different than it's usually seen and usually experienced and i can't wait around for you to be different and i can't wait around for another church to start the difference we have to decide individually i have to decide i am going to live out my faith in an out loud, sincere way. We have to decide that together. The church has to decide that together. And I tell you what, when people start hearing about a church where God shows up, you won't be able to keep them out of the doors. I'm convinced of that. Because I believe still today people are looking to experience God. And God is not being experienced in so many churches today because the believers in those churches are so sinful in their attitude and in their behavior. They're not dealing with the stuff in their life. They're just playing a game. And, you know, God's not interested in showing up where games are being played. Another thing you can share with them and think about Many hypocrites, think about this, many hypocrites are only pretending to be God's people. All right? Many hypocrites are only pretending to be God's people. Paul warned Timothy about this. Let me just read to you in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, they will act religious, talk about the end times, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. He says, stay away from people like that. Stay away from people who act religious, but they really don't have God in their lives. How do you know, how do you know the difference between somebody who's acting and somebody who's the real deal? Three things, real quick. One, listen. Listen to them. It may take a while, but just keep listening and listening and listening. Is what they say, is it in agreement with what the scriptures say? Secondly, watch. 
Listen now, watch. Watch how they live their life. Do they actually live what the scriptures say? Do they practice what we know to be true about God's word? And thirdly, thirdly, see if they can admit that they're sinners, that they fail, that they need grace. And if all they ever do is tell you about what other people have done wrong, if all they can ever do is point to what's wrong with others, you know you got a dangerous kind of narcissistic person on your hands. Listen, watch, and look for humility. You might want to jot this down. Hypocrisy comes in degrees, all right? Hypocrisy comes in degrees, and the truth is Each of us struggles with some measure of it. I do. Anybody else besides me? All right? If you didn't raise your hand, you're a hypocrite. (laughs) Just kidding, all right? right? We all struggle with it. From one degree to another, every one of us struggles with hypocrisy. And we need to be honest enough to admit it, to be open about it and say, yes, it's an issue in my life. I am not a perfect Christian. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says our attempt at righteousness, our attempts at legalism, at keeping all the rules in God's sight, man, it is filthy rags, Paul says in Romans. It doesn't measure up. It does not impress God. God doesn't love me because I keep the rules. God loves me just because. And it's an amazing thing that God would love me. I can't earn his love. I don't deserve his love. It's all about his grace. It's all about his mercy. It's all about his forgiveness. Folks, it doesn't get better than that, does it? You know, one of the ways to look at it is kind of like how I look, how I look at a love relationship in a marriage. You know, I, I, uh, I love my wife tremendously, and I like to do things for my wife. And the reason I do that is because I know how much she loves me. Her love for me compels me to want to love her. But in a lot of relationships, it's, it's different than that. Very dysfunctional. People do things for their spouse or for their parents or for their kids in hopes that if they do enough, they'll get love back. And we go through life like that, trying to manipulate and, and earn people's loves by, by love, by how we behave, by how we act, by how we look. Thank God he doesn't require that of us. In fact, if you try to do that with God, he just, he just crosses his hands and look at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> Nothing you can do to earn it. It's a free gift. Stop it. Just accept what I've done for you and love me back because, because you're, you know how, how loved you are. He's saying, well, does that give us license then to really mess up? Does that give us license then to, to sin? I mean, if, if we got all this grace, then do I really need to, to worry about being good and behaving myself? Yes, you do. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You're obligated to be obedient to God. You're obligated to behave and act like a Christian toward others. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. 
No, it's based on what God's done for you. Keep that in mind. Humble yourself with that and make sure toward others you show love and you show grace. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ, let that rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always, always, always be thankful for what God has done for you. You know, I've always had a picture of what I think the church ought to be like. And I'm very sincere when I say this. There's a dear friend of mine, his family, who I love very, very much, who was a pastor, and and many, many years ago, um, his alcoholism uh, came out and a few other nasty habits. and, And I was part of the intervention process in his life. And as a result of that, uh, he went and, and got help in an in a inpatient kind of program, and then, and then he started becoming a tender at, at 12-step groups. And I really uh, watched uh, a transformation take place in his life. And he said, well, why don't you come to a 12-step group with me? And I'm like, I'm not going there. I'm not an alcoholic. He said, no, 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 you need to come see what it's like. And finally, I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll go to the AA meeting, right? But I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm not an alcoholic, all right? I want to tell you what. I went to the AA meeting and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Oh man, did they cuss? Whew. Did they smoke? And can, can alcoholics who are off the bottle, can they chew gum and fidget? They are an interesting bunch. And I love it, you know, when, when you come to me like that and somebody stands up and they go, hello, I'm Dale, and I'm an alcoholic, and everybody else goes, hello, Dale. Because <laughs> everybody else in the room is an alcoholic. It's like no pretense. And what I also like about it is if you get up and start making excuses for your alcoholism, another alcoholic will get up and shout you down. Oh, you're just a plain old drunk. There's nothing special about you. You're just like the rest of us. Okay. <laughs> I thought, man, that's what the church ought to be like. Church ought to be a place where I can come in and say, hey, I'm Dale and I'm a sinner. And everybody else says, hello, Dale, we're sinners too. Let's, in fact, let's try it. This campus 111. I can hear you at 111. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Ready? Hi, I'm Dale and I'm a sinner. Hello. Some of you had struggled with that, didn't you? Your inner Pharisee was like, well, what people next to me think if I say I'm a sinner? Well, you are. Get over it. We're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, we all ought to be able to look at each other without judgmental eyes. We ought to be able to look at each other and instead of putting each other down, we ought to be lifting each other up. And one of us gets out of hand, the other one of us just says, hey, you know, I'm a sinner too, I messed up too, and you're messing up right now, you need change. But I'm not telling you change because I'm better than you, I'm just telling you change because I know what you're up to. Been there, done that, next week you might have to do it for me. And wouldn't that be a good place to go? That'd be a great church, wouldn't it? Don't got to pretend. Don't have to wear my tie. Don't have to hide behind a 20-pound King James Bible. Don't have to act religious. Don't have to talk religious. I can just be me. Because God loves me. And you're supposed to love me too. And I'm supposed to love you. Now, how hard is that? It's a whole lot easier than all the pretending we do, don't you think? A whole lot easier. Because when it's all said and done, I like what the old adage says. All we are is beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread.
bread of life, Jesus Christ, and his word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you without any, any reservation, any pride, that I am a sinner through and through. That I am saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ extended to me by your wonderful grace. And any given day, oh God, I can jump off the deep end into sin again. But it's your grace that keeps me going. It's your grace that picks me up. It's the grace and love and forgiveness of my wife and my family and my friends and my church. God, I pray that we would make up our minds here this weekend to turn off the hypocrisy and just start being real. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, and all God's dear children said, Amen. Let's keep worshiping. Let's stand.